Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and its Biggs Institute, expanding the horizons of dementia research and advancing comprehensive care. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org. Okay, so today is December 14th, and I just had to go buy a gate belt for my dad, but I'm not sure we have the right kind. It's the thing that you can kind of help someone lift them from a chair um, if they fall. Back in December, my job as a caregiver was getting harder as my dad's health declined. We need some of those plastic urinals, and we need bed pads, and we need rubber gloves or plastic gloves for our caregiver. And it shouldn't have been surprising that caring for him was becoming more complicated, but it definitely was. I'm also supposed to get dad a blood test at a lab during COVID when he has immense swelling and doesn't seem able to walk. There seemed to be long stretches where everything was okay for my dad, and then a big decline. And every time he declined, I thought to myself, is it time to talk about dying? This is 24-7, a podcast about what happens when you become your parent's parent. I'm Kitty Isley. One night, a while ago, when my dad was pretty cogent, I asked if I could interview him about how he wanted his daughters to take care of him. It was after yet another trip to the hospital, when his heart didn't seem to be working right, and I was tiptoeing around what might happen next. We'd certainly talked about death and the afterlife before. We grew up Catholic, and my dad has had a pretty meaningful spiritual life. He was close to the monks who taught at his Benedictine college, and he often quoted one of their sayings, keep death always before you. Not in a morbid way, but more to remind you that life is finite and that you should live it fully and think about what might be yet to come. But I definitely didn't know how to talk to my dad about his own death, now that it felt so real. At first, we talked about friends in his neighborhood. We have a lot of good memories, and you have a lot of friends. You have a lot of young friends. Um, does anything really worry you about getting older alone? Do you have a big concern or a fear? And you don't have to have it, but I'm just curious for me to understand that. No, the only concern is that as you get older, your only certainty in life is death. So just a question of uh, how long you have to live and and uh, if you if you and how you will die, whether you die <clears throat> suddenly or in a rest home or of a lingering disease or something. Got a preference? What's that? Do you have a preference? <laughs> yes, uh, sudden sudden death, without rest home. Without a rest home. Yeah. Well, even even the rest home, uh, I wouldn't want to. Not a lingering death, but a quick death. Who do you think you'll see after you die? I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure I'll see anybody. I'm, I'm not sure that there's a hereafter or not. I don't know. But you still go to church, and you still find a lot of comfort and solace in that. So can you tell me a little about that? About going to church? Well, it's a lifelong habit. I've gone to church, and I have friends in church as well. 
it uh, helps. I think it helps you adjust to getting older and helps you adjust to life's uh, problems. Do you doubt the kinds of things that you found in church about an afterlife, or does it just, it's all going to be a mystery? Uh, just the skepticism, I guess. Everybody talks about an afterlife, but there's no evidence that uh, there is an afterlife. Uh, I don't know. Because that's sort of the promise of Catholicism, is that there's a next life. Yeah. But each each religion has uh, 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 its own version of afterlife. I guess one of them must be right. <laughs> After that conversation, I went outside to think about it. Wow, so I just had a really intense and beautiful conversation with my dad. Hearing my dad talk with such uncertainty about the afterlife was a huge shock. Like, maybe he was more afraid than I realized. I just can't imagine that all of our energy doesn't disappear when the body disappears. And part of me is trying to prove that to him and make him feel safer about it, because I think he's very scared of dying. And I, of course, don't want him to die, but part of me is like, it's okay if you do. It's natural. Don't, don't feel like you have to hang on for us if you're in bad shape. I felt completely at sea. I needed some guide to this situation, not just the emotional and spiritual aspects, but also the practical matter of preparing for a death. I got in touch with a friend from high school who had made a midlife career change to become a hospice chaplain. Hey there. Hey there. How are you? Good, nice to see you. Good to see you. Ann Pulliam offered to come by the house. So I sat down with her because I just needed to understand what comes next in this caregiving tale. I wanted to know first if I should really talk to my dad about dying. How do you start a conversation in a family if... Or do you need to, like, let someone know it's okay to die? Well, in hospice care, we, uh, we do often tell families that sometimes people do need to be told it's okay to die. They worry that people are taking a long time to die because they're, they don't want to upset their families. And so we often encourage families to say it's okay to die. Some families are able to do that. Others are not. My own mother-in-law could not say those words to my father-in-law. Um, I said it's okay to my mom for her to go, that we would take care of my dad. That was her biggest worry on her deathbed. So, you know, at the very end, I would say um, that we do encourage people to, to give people permission to go. But, you know, when someone's still alive and doing well, that's not necessarily where you need to go right now. However, you know, the more conversations you can have with your loved one while they're still able, mm-hmm. the more closure you'll get and the more information you'll have on what they want to happen after they die. You know, what what should we do with the house or those kinds of things, what their wishes are, how they want to be remembered. Um, when people enroll in hospice care, I tell them this is the most precious time and it's really sacred time for you to start having those conversations, if you haven't already. Really, we should all be having those conversations all the time. But but, um, 
it's it's really sacred time and so it's good to try and resolve any family conflicts that have been lurking for years you know tell people thank you or and i love you a lot of people don't say that to their loved ones even on their deathbed tell me about can you tell me about a time that you either witnessed or were part of one of a conversation that you would call sacred and and what do you mean by sacred well in my own family, when my mom had her leukemia come back, uh, and we knew that there was nothing else that we could do, and she was going on hospice care. I'll never forget, we both uh, were in her bed, and she said to me, was I a good mother? I said, yes, mom, of course, you were a great mother. And I don't know that I had ever told her that, and obviously something was weighing on her about that, and she, and she said, well, no, I wasn't. I was fat. <laughs> as if that's the measure of being a good mom or not. Um, and so we had a good laugh uh, about that. And um, so, you know, I was able to tell her that she was a great mom um, before she died, which I'm so glad that she asked me that. She prompted that, you know, because she was able to understand that she was dying really before we were. And so then when we got the sort of elephant in the room when we named it that she was going to die. I'm like, okay, now, Mom, when you go to heaven, I'm going to still need your help down here. So I'm going to be calling on you. And and she said, good, because I'm going to want to know what, what happens with those kids. So to me, those are sacred because they're conversations that we probably wouldn't have had if we didn't know that she was dying. And she died maybe a week later after that. So that's what really made me feel called to go into hospice care because I feel like the time with other people, they're experiencing this. I can help them through these conversations, navigate these conversations, but I also get to witness the most sacred and holy times. It's very intimate. It's like childbirth um, to be with somebody uh, at the end of their lives. The most amazingly intimate, profound thing that I can think of that happened recently was there was a young man who died he was only in his 30s, and um, he had colon cancer. And I went over there after he died to support the family, and I walked in, and his dad was shaving him. And I said to his wife, who was outside the room, like, well, you know, the funeral home will take care of that. And she said, no. He taught him how to shave when he was 13 years old, and he wanted to give him his last shave before we buried him. So... Things like that, I get to see on a daily basis. How does somebody find your company if they aren't in a hospitalized situation? Well, there are several different ways to get into care with hospice companies. Number one, you have to be deemed by a doctor as hospice eligible. But you can ask your primary care doctor to refer you. They often will initiate a referral. Mm -hmm. Or if a family... Um, is wondering if their loved one is getting into, you know, the hospice arena. They can self-refer. You know, there's mm-hmm. 1-800 numbers you can call, and a nurse would come out and do an assessment mm-hmm. and, and say that somebody is hospice eligible. But basically, it's when a doctor um, considers that if the person's condition, whatever it may be, were to continue its natural progression, that the doctor would not be surprised that they would be gone um, within six months. What my role on the team is, is the hospice chaplain, which is for spiritual care 
and emotional support for the family. It's not necessarily religious, sometimes it can be, but it's all about the patient and the family's um, preferences. So yeah, so I go in there and I help with family dynamics, help start some of the difficult conversations that family members won't have or feel uncomfortable um, starting. How would you start a conversation with someone? What would you be asking to figure out what they need from a spiritual guidance? Normally, I go in and say, you know, how's it going? How's it going adjusting to being on hospice care? It's a big adjustment, isn't it? And then I let them and I go from there. If I don't have it on the case sheet, I would say, you know, what is the faith tradition that you live with or have lived with or were brought up with? And if they say nothing, I'll say, well, what brings you meaning in life? You know, some people will say my church. Yeah, I love going to mass or I love going to temple or synagogue. Others, it will be, you know what, my garden, my horses. And then I'll be, tell me about your horses. And then they'll talk. And, and it can really enliven them. You can see the sparkle come back when they're, well, you know, I raised race horses and this and that. Or, you know, one old man I'll never forget, he told me about all the different kinds of tomatoes that he used to grow. And so every time I would visit him, we would talk about our gardens. It's really just trying to find a connection. You know, it might be shopping. One lady really wasn't engaging at all, and then she mentioned my shoes. She liked my shoes, and all of a sudden we connected on where we like to shop. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, I, I love it because I feel like I'm filling a little hole in the care of a patient to address the whole person. I'm curious what you notice and why you're seeing more adult children or encountering them, or if they're the ones that just express a little more need. Well, I, you know, they say the population of elders is um, increasing. There's a silver tsunami. All the baby boomers are now turning to where they, they need help. And so it's all our generation, I'm in my 50s too, who are dealing with with parents. Um, and And often... You know, the one spouse or the other will have passed away already. And so it's just one remaining spouse. Although we've had um, married couples where both spouses are on hospice at the same time. Um, that can be tough, too. Um, but I'm not really sure why I'm seeing more adult children. Maybe they're just the ones who turn to hospice after one of the parents passes away, like the first spouse tries to take care of the other spouse and mm -hmm. then it's when there's just one remaining spouse that uh, that the adult children get more involved and you know cry for help with <laughs> and we can support them that's what the wonderful thing about hospice we can support people at this time because you're kind of thrown into it when you talk about having these conversations sort of like constantly being open to it I don't think my dad wants to die so I don't really know how to even have that conversation, except that he is kind of dying. Well, I think one of the things that I do as a chaplain is often I try to destigmatize death as something that you don't want to talk about, because, you know, we're all dying. You and I both today are one day closer to our death than we were yesterday. And so I point that out to people. Yes, your dad is dying, but so are we. Mm -hmm. We're, you know, that's that's the nature of the species. <laughs> One of the ways I open up that conversation 
would be uh, dead. Yeah. Now that we're getting up in years, you know, do you ever think about how you'd like to be remembered? And then you'll hear him, hopefully, if he's even open to it, would go to point out what's important to him. You, you, might, you might hear things that you, you know, would be really surprised at. As far as his belief in the afterlife, you can't force anybody else to have their belief. You can just listen to his belief. I often, you know, with family and friends anyway, not with my patients, but I often wish that others had my belief of, I'm going to see you again, the Christian belief of, of the afterlife that will be reunited um, in, quote unquote, heaven, whatever that is. I I'm kind of living with that contract as well. It brings me comfort now when I'm grieving the loss of my mom or of, you know, anticipatory grief of that I'm going to lose my dad, but uh, that life will be eternal somewhere else uh, beyond this. But you can't really, you can't expect everybody to have that belief. Um, you can just explore it with him and listen and, and be open to it. It's hard to get him started talking about it. Maybe he doesn't need to. You just saw him this morning. He's actually pretty chipper. And sometimes he's so not chipper that you're just like, well, not that you're depressed. You're just like you're flat. You've lost an appetite for living. You've lost taste, desire. And that's when I wonder if he's hanging on because he feels like he doesn't want us to hurt. Do I need to give him permission to start thinking about this? And maybe I don't. Maybe not yet. Yeah. Um, eventually. But this is sacred time you're on here. And you can have those conversations if he's open to it. But you can also just enjoy the normal, the bowl of fruit in the morning and, you know, the gift of an ordinary day and just be with him wherever he is. Some days he'll be flat and some days he'll have more of a zest or sparkle in his eye. And you don't always have to have those heavy conversations. Some people don't ever want to go there. You know, so every family's different. But the nice thing about this time is it it gives you the opportunity to say everything you need to say. That's my friend Ann Pulliam, a hospice chaplain in Virginia. Now, this is the hard part to say. My dad did end up needing hospice care earlier this year. He didn't want to die, but he was graceful about accepting help. And last month, a day after his 85th birthday, Dad left us. I'll have some more to say about that, about how we navigated and what we learned about the medical and care systems in a future episode. For now, this is the end of the first season of 24-7. The University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio is proud to support this podcast. At our Biggs Institute, we're expanding the horizons of Alzheimer's research while striving to support everyone involved in dementia care, from patients and families to healthcare professionals. Benefit from our free online programs and educational resources. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org. If you heard something you liked on 24-7, tell your friends, tell someone in your family or your community or your doctor. I made this show because I felt alone 
and I want to help other people not feel that way. The more people who know about 24-7, the better chance we have to help each other through this. You can find all of our episodes at tpr.org slash 247. 24-7 is produced by me, Kitty Isley, and Ben Henry, with help from Cindy Carpian. The show is a production of Texas Public Radio. Stories like those shared in this podcast inspire the work being done at the Biggs Institute of the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. Did you know you can donate your brain to help support future dementia research? Through our brain donation program, researchers are learning more about how biological and environmental factors influence a person's health. With the gift of one brain, researchers gain insight for hundreds of research studies, bringing hope to the more than 55 million people worldwide touched by dementia. Learn how you can be a part of these discoveries at uthealthdementia.org.